the Jewish views on accusations of corruption against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. What does this mean for his premiership? Nissim Black, the self-titled gangster rapper turned Orthodox Jew, we hear his incredible story. And David and Beryl Davis find out how one couple's tragic loss is being turned into a way of helping so many others. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said that the allegations of corruption against him are biased, extreme and full of holes. The police are recommending that he be charged over claims that he accepted nearly 300,000 US dollars in bribes from two billionaires. Mr Netanyahu has vowed to remain in office, but opposition politicians are urging his coalition allies to abandon his government. They, though, it's reported, are backing him for now, while the Prime Minister's cabinet colleagues issued statements of support. Jeremy Newmark has stepped down from his role as chair of the Jewish Labour Movement following allegations of financial impropriety during his time at the helm of the JLC. The Jewish Leadership Council has hired an independent law firm and will soon recruit independent accountants as well to review its handling of the case around Newmark, who resigned in 2013 for health reasons. In Israel, the condition of the pilot of the F-16 fighter jet, which was downed by Syrian anti-aircraft fire, is reported to have improved. The Ramban Healthcare Campus in Haifa said he'd been removed from a respirator. Israeli jets attacked 12 targets in Syria in response to an Iranian drone entering Israel's airspace from inside Syria. In showbiz news, Paul McCartney will receive the prestigious Wolf Prize for Music from the Israeli president, Reuven Rivlin, in a ceremony to be held at the Knesset at the end of May. Sir Paul will share the accolade with conductor and musician Adam Fisher. President Rivlin said Israelis share the eternal love of the works of the Beatles and Sir Paul McCartney. And finally, a nice Jewish girl from North London was chosen to lead the first float at Brazil's world-famous Rio Carnival. 37-year-old Samantha Mortner, who once lived in Kentish Town, moved to South America 12 years ago, where she learned samba, which is what qualified her to dance in the parade in front of a crowd estimated to be 90,000 strong. That's the news. Andrew's here now to ruffle some feathers with the sport. I try not to, Viv, but thanks anyway. American snowboarder Ariel Gold became the first Jewish medal winner at this year's Winter Olympics when she claimed bronze in the half-pipe event. The 21-year-old said winning her first Olympic medal was an amazing feeling. Closer to home, the UK's top Jewish boxer, Tony Milch, is considering his future in the ring after he suffered his second consecutive defeat. While saying he won't be making any rash decisions, when pressed on his future, he alluded to other opportunities on his mind outside of boxing. And finally, Celtic's Israeli midfielder, Nir Biton, has been ruled out for the rest of the season through injury. Manager Brandon Rogers confirmed he underwent knee surgery, meaning he will miss the remainder of the campaign. Don't forget, you can keep up to date with all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we usually do, with a look over your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is Features Editor Fran Wolfish and Online Editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. And on the front page, the headline reads, Shahita Labelling Fears, Labour Plan to Mark Meat Stunned or Non-Stunned? 
It's something that has been spoken about a little bit before, but now Labour Party actually has announced that it plans to introduce mandatory labelling of meat as stunned or non-stunned. Obviously, the Jewish community has reacted mm, with trepidation, I would say, at the thought of something like this being introduced, mostly because it is a threat to Shechita. Shechita, obviously, the, the Jewish ritual slaughtering of animals, requires that the animal is not stunned. Shimon Cohen, who's actually the Shikita UK's campaign director, has taken issue with the whole idea, saying that basically it's, you know, that we have to be careful not to mislead the consumer into believing that somehow mechanical stunning is a kinder process than not stunning the animal and that the animal is sent into this woozy unconsciousness, as he calls it, that actually that there isn't still enough scientific evidence to suggest whether an animal does feel pain more with stunning or without being stunned. I think the bottom line is, and this is very easy for me to sit here as someone who doesn't eat meat or poultry, but surely you have to think if you are going to take the decision to kill an animal, I'm sorry to be graphic, but it's true, but to kill it, to eat it, regardless of whether or not you stun it or you don't stun it, and both sides of the fence have argued that their way is kinder in terms of shahita and the process of halal. They've all argued that because they go straight for a certain vein, it's quicker and less of a painful process, whereas stunning, not necessarily the same, but of course they're rendered unconscious first. Whichever way you look at it, surely it's just an irrelevance. You are ultimately taking an animal's life and therefore does that not mean anything to anyone, Jack? I think it does mean a lot to the Jewish community and the Muslim community who use this method of slaughter. And I think one thing that's really been missed in this entire debate is the wider attack on religious freedoms in Europe and in the UK. In Europe, we've seen across a number of Scandinavian countries and Eastern European countries, I mean, even in Poland this week, they were discussing putting restrictions on Shakita. There has been an attack on religious freedoms and it doesn't really seem the right time for the Labour Party to be saying this kind of thing when there's been a tension between the party and the Jewish community. Really, they should be looking to reassure the Jewish community about what they would do in government. OK, all right. Well, let's have a look at some of the other stories making the paper for this week. Also on the front page, by the way, just a quick nod. You will also see Our Heroes is the other headline. And it's time to honour the community's greatest menches. That's, of course, referring to the Night of Heroes. And you'll find all the information on that on pages 16 to 20. But if we turn to page four and the headline there reads Police at Campus Israeli Demo. This week, a familiar sight, unfortunately, for London Jewish students, demonstrations, anti-Israel protesters and attempts to stop an Israeli speaker. This week at King's College, London, the former Deputy Prime Minister of Israel, Dan Meridor, was speaking at a joint event between King's and City University. And about 60 protesters turned up outside, complete with placards and shouting and chanting, calling him a war criminal and even the police were called to ensure student safety. Now, this is an issue of freedom of speech on campus. This is an issue of Jewish students having the right to bring in speakers. And as it happens, this is a speaker who has had a long and distinguished career of trying to build bridges between Israelis and Palestinians. So calling him a war criminal is quite misplaced. Well, as most of these things sadly appear to be, and of course it comes just ahead 
of Apartheid Week, or Israeli Apartheid Week, as it is regrettably known as. But anyway, let's talk about other things, shall we? Page six of the paper this week, board campaigns for female candidates. Yes, in the week after we celebrated 100 years since women got the vote, what we noticed was that obviously women have made many achievements since then, and yet... In some quarters, women are still hugely underrepresented. This is something that's actually been noticed on the board of deputies, and they're actively seeking more women and young people to put themselves forward and stand for election onto the boards of deputies. I think you know that's, that's a great idea, and we need to have more diversity, more voices, especially in our communal organisations that shape our policy and that help us forge relationships with other communities. And so it can only be a good thing to include more women and more young people. And of course, historically, the Board of Deputies has actually given women a voice. They gave women the vote before women could vote nationally, and they have had a a female board president before. So this is a, a great step, but the board has taken previous measures in the past, of course. See, it does seem a trifle odd to me, and I'm not encouraged to have an opinion on this show, but hey, I'm going to offer it this time. It seems a trifle odd to me that in 2018, we're still talking about trying to get more women into roles. We're still trying to get this, whatever we call equality in place. And it seems a bit bizarre that considering the Board of Deputies has been so forward thinking, as you've just proven, Jack, that we are talking about this with them. But Anyway, look, hopefully with a bit of luck, this campaign will go some way to make sure that those steps are taken. Okay, page 14 now, and the headline reads, As school reopens, Danes look back on terror attack. So there are two landmarks, really. One is a Jewish school reopening in Copenhagen, which will happen on Monday. And the other is the anniversary of a terror attack that happened three years ago in which a security guard called Dan Uzan, who was standing guard at a bat mitzvah, he was killed in the Danish capital. It's another poignant moment for European Jews, another terrorist attack that we're reflecting on, but it's good to see that there's been progress with the the school reopening. Absolutely, and of course, Fran, that with all of these occurrences, it does make us step back and think of our own, well, I suppose, mortality, really, doesn't it? It just makes you grateful that we get to live in relative freedom in this country. And we, not necessarily as Jews, but maybe as Londoners, that's different, but we don't necessarily face these threats. We don't, and yet at the same time, I feel we do. I would say the legacy of the Copenhagen shooting is that uh, certainly communal organisations, schools, synagogues, beefed up their security processes. So when I go to synagogue now, I always see all the volunteer guards wearing knife-proof or bulletproof vests at the very least. I have to wear those, yeah, Yeah. when I do security. And I, I do think that it made us far more aware that something like Copenhagen could happen in London. Obviously, we've taken all the steps to ensure, God forbid, that ever does happen. But I think we have to be on our guard. I agree that we are much safer in the UK. But never say never, Phil. These are troubling times and we have to be alert. We do indeed have to be alert. And apparently there are some archaeologists who have been very alert in Israel very quickly. And finally, on page 10, 1,800-year-old mosaic unearthed in Israeli park. 
archaeologists actually discovered a multicolored mosaic in Caesarea National Park and it's 1800 years old. It's a Byzantine era Roman mosaic bearing an inscription in ancient Greek and apparently it's of rare high quality. It's 11.5 feet by 26 feet, so quite sizable. Certainly archaeologists in Israel are very excited about this discovery and Caesarea already has so much Roman history to it so it's fascinating to see that they're still all these years later still discovering all these new things um, or old things as or the case old may be things old new things new old things well whichever way round you want to put it don't forget you can always have a look at that online as well thank you both that's all the time we've got for for a look at the paper for this week don't forget you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News though every Thursday across London or you can read the e-paper online where you'll also see that image at jewishnews.co.uk as you heard a little earlier on there are now a series of investigations being carried out against Benjamin Netanyahu and his inner circle the Israeli police have called for the Prime Minister to be indicted on charges of bribery and breach of trust Mr Netanyahu has protested his innocence and called the accusations baseless this is clearly a more complicated and delicate case so to discuss it in more details we can now speak to Haviv Gur senior analyst for the Times of Israel Haviv can we just start please with the key facts to this case what do we know about the accusations the prime minister is facing currently for the last i would say maybe year some of the time there was an undercover investigation for the rest of the time It's been known for the past few months. Police have been investigating the prime minister on a series of suspicions, none of which are very clear-cut corruption bribes with, you know, an obvious quid pro quo in which he somehow violated his public trust, but all of which appear strange, inappropriate. For many years, he received gifts that came to hundreds of thousands of shekels. The bribery charges that police recommend come to something like a million shekels, which is roughly a quarter million or $300,000 or so. And they came from billionaire benefactors who also have billionaire friends of his, a man named Arnon Milchin, who is a Hollywood producer, um, James Packer, the Australian billionaire. And both of them also have business interests in Israel, including in Israeli media outlets, Prime Minister Netanyahu also has served as communications minister for much of the current government and has led reforms in Israeli media, in the Israeli media market, all of which were beneficial to the particular stakes that Milchin and Packer have in in the market. So there are all sorts of things that look suspicious. He Netanyahu himself is a millionaire. It's not clear why he needed to receive hundreds of thousands of shekels worth of gourmet champagne and cigars from, you know, billionaires. He could afford to simply buy these products. And the reforms that he has advanced have been reforms that he believes in. I think that there's no question of that as well. In other words, he's he's very much a free market politician. He's one of the great economic reformers of Israeli history. He ended the currency controls in the 90s. You used to not be able to move $10,000 in and out of the country, more than $10,000 at any given time. And of course, Israel takes in billions in foreign direct investment every year now, and that doesn't come in in you know little $10,000 increments. 
So Netanyahu has had a decades of of being at the forefront of of free market policies, of privatization of government industries, and and that has continued. And that has benefited people who are his close friends and have been giving him hundreds of thousands of shekels of gifts over the past few years while he has served as prime minister. Okay, yeah. but let's clarify as well. That's also possibly benefited hundreds of thousands of Israeli citizens as well who are in a position of particular wealth, who perhaps maybe were under certain restrictions before. So it's not necessarily just for his benefit, even if he does benefit from it. And furthermore, just to pick up on something you said about how he's received all of these donations from various individuals, is it not the case that most political parties, whether it's direct to their leaders or certainly to the parties themselves, often receive grants and and gifts, as they're known, from different supporters. How is this any different to that? So there, there are a couple of different issues. What, what you just said really is Netanyahu's own response, and it's a response he told the Israeli people, and he said, you know, he did a public uh, Facebook video chat, and, and, and this was his response. His response was, look, these are my policies for decades now. It's not as though you didn't know I had reforms of the, you know, communications markets or whatever. And these are these, you know, and, and, and this is who I am. And these are my friends. My friends and I happen to agree. We happen to all have our interests aligned. And these are gifts from these friends. Also, he said, you know, if, if you think if I wanted money, I would be prime minister of Israel, where the salary is something like 45,000 shekels a month. I'm not sure what that is in British pounds per year, but but you, you know viewers can do the math. It's a it's a nice salary, but it's not a millionaire's salary or a billionaire's salary. And Netanyahu is a man with a, an MBA from MIT. He would he does not need to be in politics to make money, right? So he says, you know, that's that's his argument. These are longstanding policies, etc. The other side of it, and this is to your question about the gifts, it is against Israeli law to receive gifts from people who might be affected by your public decisions, because it's almost impossible to know the intent side. And so there isn't in Israeli law a requirement for intent. Don't take gifts from people whose livelihood you are going to affect while you're in a public position, while you're in public service, right? That's that's the standard. And Netanyahu has allowed himself to accept what are really ultimately petty gifts. So can I ask, if they are such petty gifts, why is this going to affect his premiership in the way that so many papers and articles are claiming it will do? There has been in Israel a generational shift, a cultural shift that is very important to understand. The old generation of politicians, people like Menachem Begin on the right, David Ben-Gurion or Golda Meir on the left, all of them ended many, many years of public service, essentially in the lower middle class. Menachem Begin resigned in the 1980s as prime minister and moved to a small working class apartment in a working class neighborhood of Jerusalem. They never became, David Ben-Gurion ends his political career as the founder of the state, prime minister for 13 years, and moves to a little kibbutz in the, in the desert. They never became wealthy as politicians. And they were replaced by a new generation, a generation of Benjamin Netanyahu, Ehud Barak, Ehud Olmert. It's a generation of people born in Israel. They're not the founders of Israel. They're the sons, the generation of the sons. Every single one of them, during immediately after or immediately before their public service, became very wealthy. 
also every single one of them have multiple corruption investigations open into their affairs. There's a sense in Israeli public life that we inherited this country from a generation of builders, a generation of people who had, you know, mistakes and problems and in the conflict with the Arabs and with the Palestinians, there were many potentially mistakes and problems made and etc. But nevertheless, they were personally, personally deeply committed, humble and honest people. And now we live with a generation of leaders. And this is really Netanyahu's political problem. This is the deep political problem that Netanyahu faces. We live with a generation of political leaders who see their public service as an opportunity to make money and enrich themselves. Ehud Olmert literally went to prison for corruption. And the bribes, by the way, that Ehud Olmert is, is, was convicted of taking don't come to millions of dollars. They come to a few hundred thousand dollars. In other words, and Ehud Olmert himself, you know, once you're a minister of industry in Israel, once you're the, the prime minister of Israel, once you're the mayor of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, and the largest city in Israel, you leave public service and you become rich anyway, just advising corporations or advising, you know, lobbyists or whatever. It's not hard to become wealthy after you're a senior politician. So then to take money and, and corrupt money, bribe, bribe money, while you're a senior politician is something that is beyond... It's not just corruption. There's something deeply pathetic about it, deeply counter to the example set by the old generation that is still what Israelis learn about in school, right? That's, that's sort of the national ethos. And so Netanyahu is deeply hurt by this. By the way, we, we, this is not the first time that there's a scandal with him and luxury items. He, in, in 2011, he charged something like $11,000 to the public purse for luxury sushi, gourmet sushi, to his residence. $11,000 worth of gourmet sushi is a lot of sushi. And th there's a sense, it's even worse because on the right, on the Israeli right, inside the Likud party, the culture of the leader as someone humble, as someone personally not chasing after you know, the hedonistic uh, pleasures of life, but uh, someone more like Menachem Begin is a very powerful image and a very powerful ideal. And so today Netanyahu is dealing with a, a criminal investigation on the one hand, which has to do with, were these bribes? Can we identify a quid pro quo that he did in return, which would really make this, you know, proper corruption? And, and that's a criminal investigation. And there's a lot of politics around that criminal investigation because obviously it's an investigation of a prime minister. But then he has a deeper political problem. And that is that even people who support him and plan to vote for him because they don't want to vote for the left, because they don't trust the left in political terms or security issues or whatever, they also don't like him. He is deeply disliked in the Likud today. And he's deeply disliked because of the sense he has been in power so long that he doesn't recognize he doesn't have that basic humility to recognize the responsibility he has as someone in power. If you're the head of a state, don't take gifts from billionaires. That's kind of the, the sentiment that is really causing him terrible political damage, including among his own supporters. Aviv, unfortunately, we are flat out of time, so I think I just need a yes or a no answer from the next question. But finally, can he come back from this? If you were a betting person, I would bet on his side. The issues that Israelis vote on are not these personal corruption issues. They vote on deep-seated fears about security and, and those sorts of concerns. And Netanyahu still wins that debate in the Israeli public debate. 
Well, Javiv Gua, I dare say this is probably not the last we have heard from you on this particular subject, but for now, thank you so much for speaking to us today. I would like to stress at this stage that Prime Minister Netanyahu has protested his innocence and called the accusations baseless. For now, thank you very much indeed. That was Javier Gore, the senior analyst for the Times of Israel, speaking to me about the accusations made by the Israeli police against Benjamin Netanyahu. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by the founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz, and June Kenton of Rigby and Pella. And they will be discussing about Jewish children and asking the question, do we place too much pressure on our next generation? Plus, Harley Baptiste will be speaking to David Davis, who will be telling us about he and his wife, Beryl's tragic loss being turned into a way of helping others. It really is a very distressing story, but an amazing story at the same time. So please do stick around for that. But first, anyone who wants to go down the path of conversion to Judaism is always going to be facing barriers and demons along the way in a bid to try and become part of the Jewish community. But if you come from a background that is tarnished with crime and so far from the world that the Jewish community boasts, it's even harder to imagine the process. Well, our next guest did just that. Nissim Black is a self-confessed gangster rapper turned Orthodox Jew. He really has got an incredible story to tell. And I'm delighted to say that our arts editor, Kate Fulton, got the chance to speak to him ahead of him coming over here to the UK to perform some of his musical work. Kate started by asking Nissim to tell us a little bit more about his life growing up. I was born in Seattle, Washington. My parents were also from there, but originally, I don't know, Mississippi, somewhere outside Chicago, you know. And then from that, I don't know, they got off slave boats a long time ago. I have no idea. What was it like for you growing up around there? For me, honestly, I grew up seeing a lot of different things. I was exposed to a lot of violence when I was really young. And that was just sort of the, the way of life, that between drug abuse and legal activity. My house was like the hub for a lot of a lot of these things that were going on in my going on in my neighborhood, and me too at an early age, I started in that lifestyle. I started smoking pot myself when I was nine years old, and I was already dealing by the time I was twelve. Nine years so, old? Who gave you the Jewish. pot? Yeah. Who gave it to you at nine years old? At nine years old, you know, it's very funny because the the plants they were growing illegal marijuana plants, but they were in my room, and so I had an uncle who would often go in. And he would sneak. And I was never, of course, I wasn't even into it. But I had one cousin who was very, very influential in my life and, like, bringing me in the wrong way. And he was there, and he and he, he made up with me that if we, you know, threatened to tell on our uncle, if he doesn't allow us to smoke with him also, then uh, we would. And so he was stealing from the plants, my, my uncle was. And so we threatened him, and then after that, he started smoking with us. He was, like, 40, 45 years old, you know, wow. smoking with two nine-year-olds. We all know that you sort of came to Judaism, but what was your what was your path? Was there was kind of a, a God shaped yeah. hole in you? Yeah, it was already. I guess because my grandfather was a Sunni Muslim, he also came to live with us when I was also around nine years old, and that was my first introduction really to religion uh, as a whole. Prior to that, I had gone to church a couple of times with uh, with an auntie of mine. She would come pick me up, take me to Sunday school. I was never really involved. It was just sort of like the time to hang out 
and play. But the first like real conversations, I guess, about God and and about religion came from my grandfather, who was a Sunni Muslim. So I played with him five times a day, and I went to mosque with him as a kid. And like for me, honestly, I was much more interested in spending time with my grandfather. He had spent most of his time in prison, so this was the first time I really had a shot at having an actual relationship with him. So I went for it, and like I said I was very young, and shortly after he ended up in prison. And from that time on, if anybody had asked me what my religion was, I was t- I would tell them I was a Muslim. Right. And when I was around 13, I was 13 years old, and I had a friend who was very adamant about getting me into this hip-hop program at this community center. And it happened to be that this community center was a Christian community center. And they worked on me a little bit there, got me to go to camp with them. And I ended up going to camp as a missionary camp. And after that, I converted to Christianity. Christianity and Judaism, don't they believe you can get to the same place, you know, it's sort of close to God? If You only had 10, 10 laws, if you like, 10 Noahide laws to follow. So what made you want to take up another 602? Yeah. 613. Yeah. You know, it's very funny to ask you that in the debate then. Well, we taught, Did it's they? taught very much so. It's taught very much so that, you know, by different forms, see for Kodesh, the holy books, they talk about the, the connection, each mitzvah that a person does is connection. I think this is brought down in the writings even of the Arizal. But each mitzvah itself is a connection. It brings the person that much closer to God. So okay. if you have seven and you have 613, you know, you take your choice, you know. I think, you know, in the end, I just got to a, such a place, more and more I kept learning. And the biggest thing was when I was reading the Navis, reading the prophets inside the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, and I kept seeing the overwhelming love that God had for the Jewish people, and specifically. And for the first time, I was reading these with open eyes, realizing that he wasn't talking about the church. He keeps talking about Israel, the nation of Israel, called Israel. And he keeps saying these such beautiful words of Manucha is going to bring them back to the land. And I'm saying, God, I thought I devoted myself, to, especially in my teenage years, I was a very, very strong Christian. And I felt a little bit like, you know, there was something missing in my relationship with him. You're on your journey to Judaism. Who was your mentor? Who, is your, who helped you? Rabbi Google. RabbiGoogle.com. I mean, I, for me, it was almost like, you know, the, oftentimes I compare it, but I, it's something different. But I went to the story of Abraham, you know. I, I was, it, it wasn't until I was alone. I didn't have any influence from friends or from the Christian program. I didn't have my grandfather there. And it was just me. It was me with a load of questions. You know, my I just got out of a traumatic situation, kill or be killed situation with another artist. I got I got deep back into, uh, you know, a different world, even with the music. And it, it led to altercation with another artist. And, and, you know, it was either, if I don't go take him out, he was going to take me out. And I, after I was able to finally come out of that situation and realize that, you know, that wasn't the type of life I wanted to live. I said, I prayed to God, and I think it was, I was praying with so much fire and so much, you know, going inside of my heart. And I got to such a place where I just, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't sit anymore without having all these questions that I had answered. And so I started looking up things, I went online, and I just simple questions, you know, if JC, if he was Jewish, why Christians not Jewish, and, you know, which religion was first. And they were very simple. And then I got more deeper into, you know, certain differences that I was starting to have as I was reading the Bible all the way through and when I would get to the New Testament and certain things that I would have. So I started to look these things up. So I entered into a congregation there that seemed to start at the beginning, seemed to make a lot of sense. 
sort of give me that authenticity that I was after. But the more and more I kept growing, and the more and more I kept growing, I was there in the congregation for two years when I was reading the actual scriptures themselves. Okay, so that was, that's your religion. So you had all this going on. And how did that how did that gel with your music? How would you describe your music, and how did you how did you kind of work the religion thing into it? As far as music was concerned, I had already I'd been doing music. I recorded my first professional record when I was thirteen, and so me already, you know, at a young age, I was already like, you know, this is my life. This is what I'm going to do. This is, you know, and the more and more I grew, I just got pulled into a more that you know, music became you know my heart and my love. And I would put all of my everything into it. And after I got into the altercation with other artists and I, and I seen that, you know, first thing was that even when I was younger and I was into the Christian world at that time, and I was much more so, I was in junior missionaries. I was trying to enter into ministry and youth outreach and different things like that. That's what I was doing. So the music then at that time also to reflect in a very positive outlook on life, you know. I wasn't at home as much. I was around more healthy relationships and I was spending a lot of time reading the Bible. And so these types of things were reflected to some degree in the music, a much more positive outlook. And it wasn't until I got offered a contract from Virgin Records and the offer was contingent upon sending in demos that match, you know, more songs, more type of things that they had in their catalog. At that time, it was 50 Cent. He was very, very big. And so what a lot of the record companies did at that time was they were just looking for something that was matching what was already big on the radio. And that obviously wasn't my mahalas, wasn't my past at that time. I was, you know, kind of trying to be on the straight and narrow. And as the conversation got, you know, more real and money figures were thrown out, it seemed more enticing, and I slowly conformed into what they wanted me to do. And before you know it, I found myself not only making songs, but I also ended up in similar circles with people that do a little bit more than gangster rap. They actually live the lifestyle. Yeah. So I found myself falling back into that, you know, same type of circle, running with the same guys that I was around before I had my Christian experience. After I got into the altercation, there was another rap- rapper who dissed me on a song. And from that, it led to altercation, which led to a friend of mine trying to kill the other artist, which led to him going to prison, which led to him now looking for me because he thought that I sent him after him. So I, after all of this situation, it made me wake up and start to realize this is not where my life was going and this wasn't the path that I wanted for myself. And so because of that, that sort of, that situation led me into a situation, led me into a mind frame of thinking like, if I don't change my life right now, then yeah. I don't know what's going to be later on. Yeah. And so from that, I, after I started searching and I got more into Judaism and the stronger show I got in. And when I finally entered into knowing that I was going to try to, you know, convert to Judaism, I shied away from music because I felt like I couldn't reach the place I wanted to spiritually and also have music because the relationship I had to it was, well, it was completely different than what I was learning about in Judaism, especially rap music per se. So it was a very, very hard transition, you know, to some degree at the beginning, realizing that, oh, not, I may not be able to keep both things. And it wasn't until a couple couple years afterwards that uh, there were people that were there telling me that I had a gift and I needed to share with the world. 
fascinating story, isn't it? Nissian Black speaking to our arts editor, Kate Fulton, there about his journey from being a gangster rapper turning into ultimately an orthodox Jew. So there you go. If you want to find out more information, Nissim's story can also be found in the Jewish News this week. And also you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll find details of his forthcoming appearances here in the UK. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition will be our rabbinic thought for the week. And it comes this time from Rabbi Amanda Golby from New North London Mazorti Synagogue. Ahead of that will be our schmooze. And remember, you can tune in to the live stream of the schmooze on our Facebook page every Wednesday lunchtime from 12.30pm. Simply go to facebook.com forward slash The Jewish Views, which is also the perfect place for you to comment along, not only as the discussion unfolds on the schmooze, but also to any of the other topics that we raise in the programme. You can also email studio at jewishviews.co.uk and on Twitter you'll find us as at jewishviewsuk. Now, on to the next item here for this week on the Jewish Views. And it starts, can you believe, over 50 years ago, where one couple by the name of Beryl and David Davis went through what no parent should ever have to experience, the loss of a child. And to make matters even worse, to this day they still do not know the final resting place of their daughter who passed only a few days old. They have tried, however, to turn such a horrible moment in their history into something amazing in their current moment in life with the launch of a new website called readabookforcharity.org. The idea is that it's a website resourced with various manuscripts, essays, poems, amongst other works of writing, in the hope that the four types of charities that the website support will benefit ultimately from it. And they include charities focusing on loneliness, addiction, learning difficulties and physical handicaps. Well, Harley Baptiste has had the chance to speak to David Davis to find out more about this remarkable story. And Harley started by asking David to tell us a bit about how this all came to be. My wife and I, we've been married coming up for nearly 60 years now. And this particular experience happened to us very soon into our marriage. We were young and happy, and a baby came along, and then tragedy struck. We didn't feel for many, many years the story of then finding Katie's seat up in Whitby really came to us as both a joy and a shock. It was so sudden, but it all sort of fitted into place. Therefore, I felt that I wanted to put it on the record, but I don't want to and never wish to, and neither did my wife ever wish to commercialize in any way. I mean, the experience... In the, while the baby, once it was born and, and then passed away and the subsequent experience of not knowing where the baby had been uh, buried and never been able to find that out. So therefore we were never able to erect a tombstone in any way. Suddenly we're driving in on the cliff tops at Whitby in Yorkshire and suddenly saw a seat and thought we'd sit down and 
look into the sea. And as we sat down on the seat itself was a little bag and it said Katie's seat. And we then sat there for quite a few hours because everything came flooding back to us. It was then that I wanted to record it in some way and it seemed to be the right sort of thing to do. And therefore in producing the, the manuscript, it, it's, it's not really a book, it's a manuscript. And then putting it together with uh, read a book for charity.org, it seemed the perfect thing to kick it off with. And that's what we've done. But it really is quite a testament to the fact that, as you say, it happened so early on and you were able to to now in, in, in 2018 sort of set up Read a Book for Charity with this as, as one of the starting the starting manuscripts or the starting yeah. piece to the library. And also it just shows the uh, fantastic relationship that you and Beryl have with one another, which is you know, a huge testament. Well, that's a kind thing to say. We take a view that when the bad things happen, then you should share them. And when the good things happen, you share them. We are, as a couple, very open. In many respects, I think it's it's helpful. What we're hoping this might do is helping other people young people who got hit with the same problem, the same tragedy, if it helps them in some way, if it helps grandparents, then we would be very happy to hear that. If someone wanted to donate or contribute to read a book for charity, how might they go about doing that? Well, they need just to go on site, read a book, read anything else that's on there at the moment. And then they have the option of going to one of four charities and simply donate direct. The donation is not to the Davis Family Foundation. It's direct to any one of the charities of their choice. I think we've been live online now for uh, about uh, seven, eight days and it seems to have already, according to the, some of the data that I've seen, seems to have attracted, you know, a little bit of interest. And, and I, I think over time, providing I can get the right content and really looking to, for people to help here, anybody who writes poetry, if they'd like to, to send it to us, we'd be happy to post it online essays, even uh, young people at school, uh, children's essays and so forth. Anything of that nature that we can put into the library that will attract traffic onto the site, into the library. As I said, the more, the bigger the library, the more money we'll raise. Simply amazing family, hey? That was David Davis speaking to the Jewish Views' Harley Baptist there. For more information, you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. 
You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the program so far. And joining Tony Honigberg and me today are founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts, and June Kenton of Rigby and Pella. The subject for this edition is based on the terribly sad interview we heard with Harley just now. We're not here to talk specifically about Beryl and David Davis, but we thought we'd talk about children, and in particular, Jewish children. The question is, why, as a people, do we place so much emphasis on our children, and is it possible that we put too much pressure on the next generation? Let's start with Judy. Why do you think, Judy, children are put at the centre of a lot of Jewish life and tradition? Well, I certainly can see with my own daughter, who has my granddaughter, that there is a lot of pressure, far more than I ever gave her. I mean, it's going to JLGB band, which she loves, and it's doing gymnastics, which she loves, and doing drama, which she loves but having to do extra work at school. And it's just, to me, it's crazy. There's no time to do nothing. You never relax. She has to come to my house to just do a bit of baking or sit there. And it's so nice when she does. June. Really, I I feel that I didn't push my children too much. I mean, when my, my son did, hadn't filled out an ACA form, I hid in his college, and until he came out of the class, I pounced on him and said, we're going to go into the library now, David, and we're going to fill out ACA forms. But he didn't want to go to university, and he didn't. He went when he was 28, he started to study. You know, at the end of the day, I think children actually do what they want to do, not what they're pushed to do. Don't you think that our... our, uh, Certainly, I know with my children and their partners, husbands, wives, etc., they seem to put... I was discussing this with my wife, funnily enough, the other day. They seem to put a lot more pressure on their children, as Judy said. The grandchildren... Monday they're doing this and this and this and Tuesday they're doing this and this and this and Wednesday and, and every day of the week they're doing lots and lots and lots and lots they haven't they're not coming home and just sitting down and relaxing yeah I don't know why because we certainly didn't put that amount of pressure on our children and they did well you know they put their own pressure on I think I think they do find their own way I, uh, and you, do as, as June said I think you're amazing me about what you're saying because I can remember my father was absolutely he was a surgeon and he was absolutely determined that all his children should go into medicine and he pushed me and pushed me and pushed me and I've been broadcasting since the age of seven and all I wanted to do was be a broadcaster. But he pushed me and pushed me and pushed me and pushed me and said I had to go to university and become a lawyer, if not a doctor, and so on and so on and so forth. So I determined, which I didn't, I mm. didn't in the end, but that's a long story which we won't go into now. I determined I was not going to be like that towards my children. The only thing that I want pushed my children into was I love classical music and I tried to make them love classical music and neither of them, neither of them can stand classical music (laughs) so I'm very much against Jewish pushing and I think 
parents as a whole, to this day, Jewish parents push their children with the yeah. Jews. I think it just gives them a status, doesn't it? Yes. You know, they're, they're not very much while they're ordinary housewives or, or working in a bank. But, of course, once the children are elevated to a doctor or, or something like that or a lawyer, they, su- they suddenly have status in this world. And I think it's... And I do think that the Jewish families still think the, thought the same, that when we were in the East End, they wanted their children to, to, to get do out, well. Yeah, get, get out, out and do it and and not just go in, into a factory. Is it more that we maybe wonder how other people see us and, and it's nice if other people see that we can do well from nothing coming out of the East End, if you like, from nothing we can build ourselves up to be know. better than, than we are? I wouldn't have said so. It's just that the parents have got children. such ambition for the children. Is that a good thing? Is it a good thing, do you think? Or is it pushing people into it too much? Well, I think I, I just think it's quite a, quite a good thing. I just think okay. that, that really and truly all they would be doing is be on their telephones or mm. on their computer playing all these games and rubbish and I just think if you can get them interested each day with something different, how gorgeous is that? That's how I feel about it. Apart, apart from Clive, who didn't turn out how his dad wanted him to, <laughs> to be, do you, th- do you think any of us turned out how our parents wanted us to be? Well, I, I left a most wonderful boarding school, which I didn't want to leave. I left at 16 because my, my parents didn't think I would get one O-level. I got them all. And by that time, I had left school by the time the results came. And at 16, I was paid 10 shillings a week to serve customs in my parents' shop. It just so happened it was a good grounding for what I did did. many years after. Mm. But at the end of the day, this is not what I wanted to do. Oh, and my mother told me I wanted to be a nurse. So my mother told me, if you're a nurse, you will never get married. Why? Well, isn't no- that typically Jewish? <laughs> yes, yes. yes, you will never get married. I thought, oh my God. I better not be a nurse yes. then, just in but, case. But do people yes. don't do that anymore, do they? No, that's, of course that's- not. It's bizarre and horrible. Yeah, yes. I, I must tell you, uh, having been involved in, in media and entertainment with photography and everything else for most of my life, my mother, up until her dying day 11 years ago, used to say to me, when are you going to get a proper job? Oh, <laughs> Because it wasn't a proper job no. as far as she was concerned because it was hit and miss. You're working today, you're not working yeah, today. You, 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 you didn't have your letters after your no, name anyway, did you? No. Well, there's another aspect of, of Jewish parents. My father used to say to me at the end of every term, if you come first in class after all the exams, I'll give you a pound. And if you come second, I'll give you 10 shillings. And if you come third, I'll give you five shillings. <laughs> but he never did. I came second and third, and you said, no, I never said that. I only want you to be first. Oh. He was dogmatic, wasn't he? You see, I think think it's terrible. He didn't say, and if you come fourth, will you pay me? (laughs) 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 But it is, does this still go on with Jewish parents, or is it less 
less bad. I don't think oh. I don't think parents use money. In no, these days. not as a priority. No, because they've I, all got the kids have all got so much. Let's face it. Yeah, they've all got their iPhones, haven't they? They've all yes. got their iPads. They've all got their televisions. But I and... do. I I am very relieved that I I'm not bringing up children mm. now. I really am. The fact that they would be on their phone or or on their computer hour after hour after hour they as it is the grandchildren come and we have to ask them to leave their phones in the hall for, for friday night dinner yeah but children are very much a part of our religion aren't they the yeah. center of our religion when you look at things like pesach seder night you know when the children take part and so the children are very important our children are very important to us and and I know that my grandchildren are very important to their parents as well as the of grandparents. And, and presumably that will go on and on and on, you know. You hope. We hope. Yes. We hope. But, because uh, children, of course, do have a very important part. I mean, that is, that's what Judaism is all mm. about, isn't it? I mean, it's one of the things that's most interesting is that you, Jews will say to you, what's important about life is life. In other religions, it's not. It's strange as it may sound, death is the is the important thing. Jews never talk about that. They only ever talk about Talk life. about the life, yes. yes. But I don't think we talk so much about death as perhaps our parents did. Well, they they, they died much earlier in oh, you know, life. So. I'm 109 and I'm still going. <laughs> <laughs> you don't look a day of 107. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Clive. <laughs> no, they did. Yeah, people did die much younger, yes. of course. You know, and, and medicine has got a lot to do of with course. that. Again, back to my mother, she was on so many tablets. You know, we reckoned if we picked her up and shook her, she would rattle because she was on so many tablets every day. But it kept her going. You know, with all the all the illnesses and all the everything she had, and, and as long as it's to... quality of life, yeah, long live. That's right. That's right. We are, yeah, we are very much involved with today and the life today, aren't we? We're not. We don't dwell on death. No. Until someone has died, and when someone has died, obviously yeah, we do you well. remember, I mean, and you know, you get, yes, and, uh, and, and, and your side and, and everything else. Yes. Yeah. It's terribly important that life is what you you live for. And that's the thing that I think Jewish parents have in in buckets. Can I just say that before we went on air, we were chatting a bit and we were talking about two different families where the parents stopped the children from being successful in what they wanted to do. Mm. And neither of them were Jewish families. And I don't think a Jewish parent would if the child was that that good or, or the husband was and wanted to do something you you'd let them go you'd you'd let them do it you'd let them you'd fly. encourage you'd encourage it Absolutely. rather than discourage it yes would you if you disapproved if it was well, as long as it's something legal i guess and you think there is a future in it or you could see a future in it if i think most of us are worried that they're going to do something it's going to collapse and and they're going to be destitute uh, and all that and we, that's not what we would like to see for our children sadly our time is up but thank you all very much indeed and my thanks to our guests founder of the jewish poetry society judy carberts and june kenton of rugby and pella please do feel free to share your jewish views with us you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Jewish Views or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. 
And of course, those details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Amanda Golby from New North London, Masorti Synagogue. I'm very interested in the commemoration of the act extending suffrage to almost all men and to some women. I always go to the polling station with a sense of excitement. I'm a woman and I can vote. I'm a Jew and I can vote. Yet sadly, I know that not everyone in these times feels like this. I have a relative, now in her thirties, who was 18 in the year of a general election. Her birthday is mid-May, and as we know, elections are normally held on the first Thursday of May. I felt very sad on her behalf, knowing that I would have been very upset if I'd been ineligible to vote by a matter of a few days. However, she seemed far less concerned, saying that the behaviour of politicians made her wonder about voting. In the event in that particular year, the serious foot-and-mouth epidemic caused the election to be delayed until June, and she did vote. I feel desperately saddened at all the examples of corruption and alleged corruption. I do believe that, at least in democracies, people enter politics because they genuinely want to make a difference, and then something happens as they want to stay in power at all costs, even when they are no longer supported by their own party. And interestingly, this is not a new problem. In the Avot de Rabbi Natan, a Gadic work of the Gaonic era, approximately the 6th to the 8th century common era, Judah ben Tabai wrote, When someone said to me before I entered into high office, enter it, I had one wish, to hound him to death. Now that I have come to it, whenever someone tells me to leave it, I have one wish to pour boiling water on them. For to high office it is hard to rise, and even as it is hard to rise up to it, so it is difficult to come down from it. I really value this anniversary, and indeed that I hope that I will be privileged in ten years to mark the centenary of all women having the vote. But I would dearly love it to be in a world where politicians hold on to their values, where power does not corrupt. And this is a challenge for all of us, not just those in power, but we who are able to vote, who want to play our part as responsible citizens. We must all play our part in the world, or at least in our small worlds, in trying to ensure that values are maintained. Thank you very much to Rabbi Amanda Golby from New North London Mazorti Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thank you very much to all of our guests, to Haviv Gur, the senior analyst at the Times of Israel, talking about the accusations of corruption aimed at Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, to Nisim Black, self-titled gangster rapper turned Orthodox Jew, ahead of his forthcoming appearance here in the UK and telling us about his incredible story, to David Davis, and even though we didn't hear from her to his wife Beryl as well talking about he and his wife's tragic loss being turned into a way of helping others thanks to all of our other contributors and of course to you at home for listening and we mustn't forget the team including our producer Sue Greenberg don't forget that you can always listen to the most recent edition of the Jewish Views by visiting our website jewishviews.co.uk where you'll also find the facility to listen to all previous episodes as well the Jewish Views is brought to you in association with the Jewish News. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.